Good morning. It is so good to be in God's house today. Chad wasn't kidding. Ruth and I went to our, our yearly student youth conference in the winter. It's called Winter Chill. We went last night. And uh, the worship and the teaching, I felt like it was Acts chapter 2. Like the Holy Spirit was coming. It was unbelievable. And, and Chad is being modest. Uh, he did a breakout session yesterday, and I heard it was fantastic. So keep praying for our students um, pray that God would continue to work in their hearts even now as we're worshiping, they're worshiping. Well, welcome back to our study of the Gospel of John. This morning we'll be looking at one of the most famous miracles of Jesus where we're going to learn about and see Jesus walking on water. And we'll do it by spending most of our time in John's Gospel. But we'll also pull from Matthew and, and Mark's as well. Uh, this is called harmonizing or bringing together numerous accounts of a specific incident for more clarity. Uh, I've said this before, but let me say it again. The reason we have four Gospels is to, in fact, uh, in part, reach four different types of people groups. God kicks off the New Testament with four Gospels uh, that kind of say the same thing, uh, but a little different because he loves everybody. Matthew is written in large part to Jewish people. They want to know, is Jesus Jewish? And is he fulfilling the Old Testament law, the Jewish promises that God had made? Matthew purposely shows Jesus' genealogy back to Father Abraham. Mark, remember we studied that gospel three years ago, is written primarily to Romans. Um, the Romans were very practical very aggressive, they move fast, they cut to the facts. If you read the Gospel of Mark, there is an immediacy to it. It's very immediate, very quick. Luke is written um, by a Gentile doctor to Gentiles, a non-Jewish people. As a doctor, uh, he tends to be a little wordy. He over-explains things. No offense, doctors, that's great. I want my doctor to over-explain things. <clears throat> Gentiles are not overly concerned about whether or not Jesus was Jewish. So, Dr. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to Adam, showing that, that God is concerned about all people, not just Jews. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sharing 60% of the same content. And John is 90% unique, and that includes information that the other Gospels don't include. Why? Because John was written last. Uh, think of it this way. The Bible does not contradict itself, but it complements itself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all telling us about Jesus. Different witnesses, different facts and details, all contributing and complementing the same truth. Now with all that said, uh, we're going to look at this event, this event where Jesus walks on water. So this morning we'll be in John 6, but I'll also be drawing from Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 14. So be ready to move around in your Bible. So, Jesus will be uh, walking on water on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually not a sea, it's a lake. Its original name was Lake Gennesaret. It's about six miles wide and 13 miles long. Um, these are some pictures that our very own Nathan Allen uh, took almost two years ago when New Heights sent a group to Israel. 
We want to make sure we get Nathan Allen here. That's the required eye candy for this morning, is Nathan Allen, always. And this is kind of gives us the, the breadth and depth and scope of this lake, but it definitely looks like a sea. Okay, please, if you have not already, turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to John chapter 6. Two weeks ago, Chad, fantastic teach. If you haven't seen it or heard it, I would encourage you to download it or go watch it on YouTube. Chad taught us that Jesus had just finished feeding 5,000 men together with their wives and children um, with five barley cakes and two dried fish, and his disciples gathered uh, 12 baskets full of leftovers, one basket apiece. Um, this was probably, conservatively, a crowd of 15 to 20,000 people. So obviously, they, they saw the power and the provision that, that only God could provide in such a miraculous way. Now remember, we're building up to this, this place. And again, if we were to harmonize the Gospels, here's some things that the people have been experiencing or they've heard about up to this point. Jesus turning water into what? Wine. Jesus healing a centurion's son. Jesus healing a, a leper. Jesus, the all-time greatest buffet ever, a spontaneous buffet, feeding 15 to 20,000 people. So, so guess what the people start to think, and we left off there two weeks ago. They start to think, this is Messiah. Th this is it. This is our moment. This is our, our one shining moment to vanquish the Romans, for Messiah to come, for him to be king, but Jesus was having none of that. So we left off with, they tried to force him to be king. John chapter 6 and verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Um, by now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. I want to stop here for just a second and turn over to Mark's passage for some more insight. Mark chapter 6, verse 45, underline this word, immediately. Remember we said, Mark is the immediate gospel. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to, to pray. Notice what Jesus does in response to the people trying to make him king. He immediately sends the disciples off. Why? Well, maybe some of them um, like the thought of Jesus being king and they would be on his staff. I mean, come on, he's going to be the king where his 12 disciples, we know Judas would have loved this. We're going to be um, not just his 12 disciples, but uh, his second, third, fourth, sixth, whatever. We're, we're up there with the king. We've got some power, but this wasn't God's plan. Instead, now get this, Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and what does he do? He prays. He knows what everyone else wants him to do. Now he needs to go be alone with the Father and hear what the Father wants him to do. Hey, please hear this. I, th I think you know this, but we have a, a culture from friends, family, TikToks, any form of social media, uh, university, job, you name it. Everyone wants to tell us what to do, how to live. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you like Jesus did, on a regular basis, get off alone with the Father and, and ask him, Father, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? 
The Bible says elsewhere that, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to be with the Father in, in prayer. Beloved, we, we need to do the same thing, right? Kevin gave us a, a great talk last week on the Lord's Prayer. I, I won't go into a, a lot of detail, um, but just like Jesus, let me encourage us to schedule daily, regular time with the Father in, in prayer. Do me a favor, raise your hand if you got the Lord's Prayer book. Did you get the Lord's Prayer booklet? Wow, these are all the people that love Jesus. Amen. Well, you still have an opportunity to love Jesus. We have more of those. I would encourage you to grab one. Um, why? Well, A, it, what an awesome thought, right? To, to pray and fast together as a body for 21 days. But, but more so, maybe it'll help you like it has helped me and helped my wife Ruth to develop patterns that are really, really important. So I wake up in the morning, and sometimes I'm up before Ruth, sometimes she's up before me, but lately I'll, I'll get up in the morning, and as I walk out into the kitchen, my living room sits to the right, and there Ruth has her place. Um, it's, it's the corner of the couch, and she's got her books stacked up and her 21 days of prayer, and I'll see her in there spending time with the Father. And then I go in my study, and as you know, I've said this before, I get in my chair, I call it my chair of prayer, and I spend time with the Father. What does that look like? Well, what I love about our 21 days of prayer and fasting is you literally get a template. How do you do this? Um, read through the Lord's Prayer. Stop and be silent. Um, read Scripture. Journal prayer requests. I wrote this down because um, to me, this is really important for me. Asking prayer is great. Sometimes listening prayer is even better. Asking prayer is great. God, I need this. I want this. I pray for this. But sometimes we need to pull back and get alone with the Father and be quiet and say, okay, God, what do you want to say to me? Hey, prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. God, God, what do you want to say to me? Verse 18, a strong wind was blowing, and the waters, um, they grew rough. And, and you're wondering, does this, like, does this happen today? It does. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, Ruth and I and Bruce and Kathy Tippett were on the Sea of Galilee attempting to cross over to Tiberias. We were on a boat. I, I guess it was kind of a Christian boat because we were singing worship songs and praise songs. And we were dancing Jewish dances, and it was awesome. And we were so excited about getting to the other side, literally halfway across the Sea of Galilee. Th they said, sorry, we have to turn back. I'm like, why? They said, because the sea's too rough and the wind's blowing too hard. We can't go any further. Um, verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles. Anyone in here ever row three or four miles in a strong wind on rough seas? Wow. Wow. Imagine rowing a boat in the middle of the night in strong wind, big waves, and, and you've just ministered to thousands upon thousands of people. Some of you skipped the shuttle this morning, by the way, thank you, and you walked in from the far par parking lot and you're wiped out. You're like, protein bar, stat, I'm done. I get it, thank you for doing that. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately um, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. I'm not gonna spend any time on that, but that's a miracle. A little teleportation there, right? He jumps in the boat, boom, they're at the shore. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna pull some, for the rest of our time, this morning, I want to pull some thoughts from our, our text that might help you and I. 
Um, and here's the first thing I, I want to point out from our passage for you and me and everybody who's ever walked on this planet or who will ever walk on this planet. The first thing is this storms will come. Storms will come. And I already know what some of you, probably not many, but what some of you are thinking because of the part of the world that we live in, because of the nation that we live in, because of your skill set, because of your privilege, all that good stuff. Some of you are thinking, well, you know, um, I'm smart enough or clever enough or wise enough. I think I can engineer a storm-free life. No, no, you can't. Unless you're six years old and younger, you cannot engineer a storm-free life. Many of us in this room, especially in a first world culture, are planners. And that's, that's a nice phrase. Um, control freaks is the not-so-nice phrase. So for those of us who are planners, we like to, nothing wrong with this, we like to know the future so we can prepare for it, so we can avoid the storms. By the way, I want to stop here for just a second, and I want to address um, some, before we go any further, some bad theology that some of you were told when you first became a, a Christian. I was told this. Um, some of us um, were told that if we just give our life to Jesus, everything will be great. They forgot to tell you, after you die. Now, now between accepting Jesus and dying, guess what? There will be storms. That's why the Bible literally says don't be shocked, right? Don't be shocked or surprised when trials or temptations or suffering comes your way. Sometimes um, storms come because we make foolish decisions or sinful decisions or rebellious decisions as God's children. Like, we know exactly what we should do, and we say, nope, I'm not going to do it. Hey, some of you, you're like, don't, don't date that guy. The scriptures tell you, the Holy Spirit tells you, your family tells you, your inner gut, which is Holy Spirit, tells you, and you're like, I'm going to date him anyways. I'm going to date her anyways. That's rebellion. God sometimes says, hey, don't take that job. Don't, don't do it. Yeah, yeah, but who's a lot of money, and who's a lot of prestige, and okay. It's going to mess with your family, with your calling. With, that's just rebellion. So sometimes storms come because we make foolish decisions, sinful or rebellious decisions. But please hear this. More often than not, storms come because we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. I really uh, want us to see this. This is so important. The disciples are in the midst of a tremendous storm. And they haven't done anything wrong. In fact, they've done what Jesus had told them to do. We just read that, remember? Mark chapter 6, Jesus made them get in the boat. Like, did Jesus send them into the storm? There are all kinds of storms. Some of, uh, of us have already experienced them. Some of you see clouds on the horizon. Some of you are in the middle of a storm right now. These storms can be financial, relational, marital, physical, vocational, parental, spiritual, or all of the above. The disciples are in a very real Storm, storm, storms will come. 
first observation. Second, second observation is this. Um, some storms are beyond our ability to navigate. What was the vocation of some of these disciples? You can, you can shout it out. Fishermen. Fishermen. They had fished the Sea of Galilee hundreds, if not thousands, of times. They had seen these storms, and even though they are seasoned fishermen who are working very hard, um, doing all they can, they, they fail. The storm is bigger than they can, can navigate. It's beyond them. Anyone in here ever experienced that? You did everything you could, but the storm is just bigger than you. Storm one, you zero. I've, I've been there. It's like, we're going to beat this. We're going to figure this out. We're going to talk it to death, analyze it to death, wisdom it to death. We're going to figure it out. Come on, Ruth, we can do this. And we just get engulfed by the storm. I've been there. You've been there. We'll be there again. They rode all night. Some of you know exactly what it's like to do everything you can, to work as hard as you can, only to realize, I cannot overcome this storm. Now we're building. Stay with me here. Third thought. Now the question arises. For every single person on this planet, especially for followers of Jesus, the question is this. Fear? Or faith. Jesus comes to them and he says what? Do not be uh, afraid. Number one commandment in all scripture. Why? Because we're afraid. When the storms come, we have to decide. We have to step back. We have to pray. We have to get along with the Father. And we have to, which is so incredibly difficult, we have to make a cognizant decision, often in a moment. Fear or faith. Fear is what happens to all of us when we see the storm. It's a normal reaction. Faith is what happens when we find Jesus in the midst of the storm. I want you to see this behind me. It's a little clunky, um, but it's not that God will remove the storm, but that God will come into the storm, and God's presence will bring peace even in the middle of the storm. Let me illustrate. Tuesday, my, my brother called me in the morning and it was staff, and staff is a crazy day, and we're in staff most of the day, and I didn't return his call. And got home that evening, I returned his call. I said, hey, Ty, what's going on? My 61-year-old brother, you know, some of you know his story, hedonist, went to prison, drug addict, last 10 years of his life, madly in love with Jesus, disciple of Jesus, he's amazing. I get around him, and I, and I, get, I, I grow in my faith. And I, I say, hey, what's going on? And he's really calm. And he says, hey, I got some news to share with you. I said, well, what, what is it? He said, well, um, I went to the doctor for my, my physical, my annual, and he said my, my protein levels are five times too high in my blood work. And he said that um, like immediately, which, you know, doctors don't usually do that, but immediately he wants to do a biopsy because he thinks I may have prostate cancer. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm rocked. My, my knees buckle as I'm standing in the kitchen talking to him. 
And uh, I said, whoa, bro. And of course, I'm in the middle of prepping for this talk. And the first thing that comes to mind, I said, Ty, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, you are in the middle of a storm right now. And, and this is what he said, and I wrote it down. He said, you know me, Lee, I, I get freaked out easily, and he does. And I tend to over-worry, and I get filled with anxiety. But he said, Lee, I, I, I can't believe you just said that, because he said, I can hear Jesus telling me, I'm in this storm with you, and it's going to be all right. And he pauses, and he says, even if you have cancer, Ty, I'm with you. I'm with you. Elizabeth Elliot once said, and by the way, she knows a thing or two about um, storms, uh, as her husband Jim was martyred at the age of 28, leaving behind Elizabeth and a two-year-old daughter. She once said this, the secret to enduring is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. My marriage is rough. Got to run. Just got back from the doctor. Whew, I, I think I might have cancer. I'm out. Forget you, God. Whew, I'm at a job where, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like Jesus isn't here. The secret to en enduring is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And I get it. In the middle of the storm, our first thought is Jesus, take the storm away. And sometimes he does. But here's what I've learned. More often than not, he just comes and sits with us in the storm. And we're going to flesh this out even more in a few minutes. But I want you to write this down. Fear is all about us trying to control the outcome. And faith is trusting Jesus to control the outcome. Full disclosure, I, I want to tell you, and I want you to hear this from me, um, that fear is real. And, and it's something that I have struggled with. And I think it's because I'm a control freak. I want to manage the situation. It's the quarterback in me. Let's go. Let's manage it. Let's get through this. What does it take? What do I have to do? Okay, I'm a little overwhelmed. And I just want to tell you this. Every time I've made a decision from fear, I've made the wrong decision. And every time um, I've made the decision from faith, I've made the right decision. Not necessarily the easy decision, but the right decision. Fourthly, fourth observation, God is okay with imperfect faith. Let's go to Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, uh, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, um, save, save me. Do me a favor, raise your hand in here, in this room, you can do this, if you've ever failed a test. Wow, I'm amazed at the amount of people that have never failed a test. 
Okay, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stretch you here. Raise your hand in the room if you, um, if you didn't get into your first college or grad school of choice. Okay, a couple of dummies like me, there we go, that's good. That's good. Um, how about this one? Because some of you are, are still, you're, you're 0 for 2 or 2 or 0, however you want to look, look at it. Um, raise your hand if you didn't get the job you wanted or the promotion that you wanted. Wow, some of you are batting 100. You're like, nope, sorry. Here we go. Um, let's try this one. Um, raise your hand if you've experienced failure of any kind. Okay, there we go. There we go. I, I want you to hear this. This is really important because this is how God has hardwired us. All of us in this room and those watching online, um, we want to walk on water. Don't let the world, um, your flesh, or the enemy tell you differently. We want to walk on water. Deep down inside, and I believe that God did not intend for his children, created in his divine image, the Imago Dei, to go through life in a desperate attempt to avoid failure. God wants us to swing away and take chances for the king and his kingdom. As I've said many times before, as a child of God, we are playing with house money. We know who wins. We know the end of the story. But I understand this. Um, the boat is safe, and the boat is secure, and the boat is comfortable, and the water is, is high, and the waves are rough, and the wind is strong, and the night is dark, and the storm is out there, and if we get out of the boat, we may sink. But... If we don't get out of the boat, we'll never walk, because if we want to walk on water, what? We have to what? Get out of the boat. Jesus comes to the disciples. Disciples see him walking on the sea, and they're terrified. He says, have no fear, it's me. He says basically this, um, you can trust my character and my confidence. You can safely, without re reservation, with no hesitation, place your life in my hands. You have the storm. You have me. You need to recognize in this moment which is more powerful. I've changed water to wine in front of you. I've healed the sick and the lame. I, I just performed the world's greatest buffet. Come on. This is your moment. So Peter says, there's always that guy in, our, in your friend group, Peter, right? I'll do it. Lord, if you really want me to, just command me. Jesus, get in. And Peter, the boat is going back and forth. Eleven disciples are cowering. Jesus is on the water. Peter sticks one leg over the boat. He sticks the other leg over the boat. He's holding onto the side of the boat, and he doesn't sink. I can only imagine he turns, he's not sinking, he lets go of the side of the boat and begins to walk. One foot in front of the other towards Jesus. Now get this, as far as I know, for the first time in human history, a mere mortal is walking on water. And he and Jesus meet somewhere in the Sea of Galilee and have a moment together. Then all of a sudden, Peter realize, realizes what, what he is doing. 
He sees the waves. He feels the sting of the water, the effects of the wind, and his faith gives way. He's afraid again, and he begins to sink. It's somewhat of a slow motion sink because he's having a dialogue with Jesus. So the question arises, did, did Peter fail? Well, yes, in one sense he did. His faith gave way. He couldn't, he couldn't stay locked into Jesus. He sank. He failed. But please hear this. There were 11 bigger failures back in the boat. They failed privately. They failed quietly. Their failure was safe, unnoticed, and uncriticized. Only Peter experienced the shame of public failure, and he's been a punchline for 2,000 years. But what are you hanging on to? Your money? Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Your reputation? What are you holding on to? Your children? Only Peter knew in a way that others never would that when he sank, Jesus would be there. He knew that Jesus was wholly adequate to save. Peter had a shared moment, a connection that nobody else could have. They couldn't have it because they never got out of the boat. Now, the point is not that Jesus will instantly always bail people out. Here's the point. It's that he's always ready to respond. There's no failure that can place you beyond the loving care of the hand of God. Jesus is always adequate to save his sinking children. Again, I want us to see this. Faith means choosing to follow Jesus even if it's imperfect. Let me finish this morning with what our passage teaches about Jesus. We saw what it teaches us, and, and that's usually where people go, because we're very myopic. We tend to be uh, self-focused and a little narcissistic when we study the scriptures, right? Well, what's in it for me? And I get it. I'm right there. But this passage isn't a, about uh, the storm or getting saved from the storm. This passage is about Jesus. point of our text. We touched on it, but let's just go a little, little deeper as we wrap up this morning. Again, Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 6, verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. 
he saw the disciples straying at their oars, so obviously he put them in the boat, went up to pray, walked back down, could still see them. They weren't making any headway, which is really a cool visual. He saw the disciples straying at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was um, about to pass by them. Throughout the years, people have struggled with the idea of Jesus walking on the water, and, and they should too. Why? Because people don't walk on water. Scripture teaches that treading on water is something that only God can do. Job chapter 9 in verse 8, he, God, alone stretches out the heavens, and he, God, alone treads on the waves of the sea. You think some of the disciples are remembering this? By the way, the point um, this is, by the way, the point that, uh, that Jesus is making here. Jesus walking on the water reveals that he's more than a teacher or a prophet. And once again, we're forced to ask ourselves, who in the world is this? Who is this? When the disciples saw Jesus passing by, walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. And Jesus immediately spoke to them. And he said in Mark chapter 6 and verse 50, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. I know what you're thinking, Lee, you've read that passage like three times. What's the point? Here's the point. The literal translation of this passage would read like this. Take courage, I am don't be afraid. Do you, do you know what that means? When Moses asked God for his name, when God revealed himself to Moses, God gave his name as I am. Genesis chapter 3, I am is God's personal name. Moses set my people free. I'm a shepherd. I can't do it. Set my people free. Go up against the most powerful nation in the world, the most powerful man, and set my people free. I can't do it. I can barely speak. I need more. You want more? I am. That's my personal name. I am. I'm with you. You can do this. It's how God describes himself. Jesus is saying that the God who created the world from nothing, who set the stars in place, who gave, who gave us life, who made a covenant with his people and delivered Israel out of Egypt, the great I am is now walking on the water in the middle of the storm. Jesus passes by them and reveals his presence and identity so that they can have confidence in the storm. The point isn't that Jesus will rescue them from the storm, although he does. The point is that the great I am is with them in the storm. That's the point. By the way, shameless plug, you can see it in the equip sheet that Chad talked about of February Wednesday, February 28th, 6.30 p.m. at our offices, Josh Graver will be teaching a class on seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. It's going to be unbelievable. You don't want to miss that. If the focus of this passage was that God will deliver us from every hardship and that he'll rescue us from every storm, then we wouldn't be prepared for what lies ahead. 
as we've already said, storms are coming. Adversity and suffering are coming. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't joy and good days and happy times. There are. But Jesus said, in this world, you'll have what? Trouble. There are, are going to be times that we're at the end of our own resources, and Jesus seems absent. The point is not that we'll be exempt from storms. The point is that the great I am is with us in the storm. Isaiah 43 and verse 1, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Verse 3, for I am. I am. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. There are people out there who believe um, they would call themselves deists. You say, deist, that sounds biblical. Not really. A deist would say that um, like a watchmaker who creates a watch and then releases it, that God created the world and released it. He's no longer a part of it. He's just letting it do its own thing. Jesus says the opposite. I created you in my image. Now I want to walk with you. Good times or bad. Do me a favor. Um, bow your heads right now. As your heads are, are, are bowed, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come on up. Some of you, you're in the storm right now, and I do not want to lessen that. I don't want to simplify it. I don't want to diminish what you're going through right now. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are screaming at you to be angry, to be sad, to blame God, to blame somebody else. And if you're a child of God in this room right now, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, the great I am, I know you're with me in this storm. Reveal yourself to me even more as I go through it. I need you. I need you. In just a few minutes, you're going to have an opportunity, and I would encourage you to do it. I would encourage you to come up, and whether it's up front or on the sides or around this room, find someone on the prayer team and just agree together with them as the scriptures say. That you're in the storm and you need Jesus in this storm. Maybe the storm you're battling with right now is is I, I don't I don't know if I know Jesus.
I don't know. I've got doubts. I look at the world and I'm like, man, it's, it's a mess. I don't, I don't know if I know the great I am. I would encourage you, come up and talk to somebody. Pray this prayer. Father, reveal Jesus to me as Savior and Lord. This is the first Sunday of the month. I'm about to pray for you all, but I want to say this. To, to my right, your left, will be a group of our elders, and they would love to pray for you, anoint you with oil, lay hands on you. It could, it could be for fear. It could be for faith. Maybe you need to pray for somebody else who's in a storm, and you just want, to, you want to, someone else to pray with you. Amen. Every Sunday we take communion. I'm going to encourage you to find someone to do it in community if you're able. If not, it's okay just to do it by yourself. There's tables all around the room. When I take communion, I'm always reminded that Jesus isn't just with me in the storm, but he died for me to be in that storm with me. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I... I need to be baptized. Speaking of water, <laughs> I've made a profession of faith. I know Jesus. I love him. I know he commanded me to get baptized, to tell the world I'm a new creation, and I just haven't done it. Do it today. Make an appointment. Do it next week. Let me pray. Father, um, the disciples failed the test. But when Jesus passed through the monster of all storms, when he was betrayed and killed, and when he bore our sins, he passed the test. Because he remained faithful in the storm, there is a hope for all of us who are faithless. I'm just reminded of what 2 Timothy says, if we are faithless, God, you remain faithful. Thank you for that. Father, we will go through hardships. May we grasp that Jesus is the great I am who's present with us in the storm, and may that change us. Soften our hearts. May his presence give us confidence, no matter how the sea may rage or the winds blow. In the name of the one who still stills storms and multiplies loaves and walks on water, in the name of the great I am, in the name of the one who died for our sins and who invites us to repent and follow him. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.